There aren't very many film directors whose work is as inextricably associated with a specific place as Oliver Stone is with Vietnam. And yet, every time we return there with him, we are given another of the myriad stories he's able to conjure out of the rice and blood of this country. Heaven and Earth was billed as the third in the Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy, after Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. And yet it is so different from the first two that it feels as much like an Oliver Stone Vietnam movie as Rocky V feels like a Rocky movie. Adam wrote that. In 1991, Stone was positively excoriated for JFK, so he returned to the womb that birthed his creative vision for one final go-around. But can we trust him? In literature, we learn of the unreliable narrator, and you have to admit, post-JFK, and especially now, Stone resembles that remark. But here we get a sensitive version of Stone, carefully telling the story of our main character, Lely Hayslip, And this is crucial. It's not Stone's story to tell this time. It's hers. You want to talk about being in the shit? Lei Li was in the shit. Her village was occupied at different times between the NVA, Viet Cong, and American forces. Her brothers thrown out of helicopters or gone missing. She was raped next to an open grave. Meant for her. We don't trust this white savior in Steve Butler, played by Tommy Lee Jones, but he wears her and us down. The America he brings her to is a carnival mirror from the world she left behind. Where once there was verdant rice patties, there is now shag carpet. Where before, every grain of rice was considered holy, there's now an in-sync disposal for leftovers. A husband with a purpose replaced with a broken angry man. It is as shocking and devastating as any Vietnam story we've ever seen on film. It's made even more miraculous that the actor playing Lei Li was a woman responding to an open college casting call. I think that's one of the things that works so well in the film. Her innocence as a newly minted professional actor works in her favor. Her insistence on making it work feels genuine, and her devastation when it doesn't feels earned. Looming over it all is Stone, who, thank God, takes a back seat to these performances and lets the camera linger on scenes both tranquil and suspenseful. It's a film no one thought Stone could make, but we are glad he did. We'll get the kids back to normal in no time, as the hosts discuss the final chapter in Oliver Stone's Vietnam trilogy with this 1993 film, Heaven and Earth. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's like a dog. If we piss on a movie once, we'll piss on it twice. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick, and I do not understand that intro. Yeah, did we watch the same movie? That was a line in the movie. It's like a dog, if he pisses on it once, he pisses on it twice? Remember when she's getting kicked out of the house because she's uh, had uh, sexual intercourse with the master of the house and the lady of the house is quite cross at her? I do remember, yeah. The the lady of the house with the pearl necklaces. Yeah. 
Hmm. She wore a pearl necklace. <laughs> Bow. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and then that music cue plays, and yeah. <laughs> there's like a montage. <laughs> Little ZZ Top comes in. It's a big part of that film. Yeah, it's a weird, a weird choice, but a, this is an interesting movie. This is, I, I feel like nobody has seen this movie. No. I think oh. it did like $5 million at the box office on a $33 million budget. Oof. That is Ouch. not a good ratio. Oh. Oliver Stone got ratioed on this film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People were sliding into the Menchies like, what? <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was wise to market this film as the third in a trilogy? I thought a lot about that watching this film. Like, get ready. It's... It's the film after Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Like, buckle up. The final chapter. This film is nothing like those films. Was it really uh, heavily marketed that way? Yeah. I gotta believe that's a part of its failure at the box office and maybe maybe critically also. Yeah, because I feel like there's a market for this f- film that isn't necessarily... Th- I mean, like, when we talked about Platoon, we talked about the, like, getting together with your with your bros in college and and watching this movie phenomenon. And I don't think that that demo is necessarily coming out for heaven and earth. Might have showed up for heaven and earth and... And then found themselves confronted with like super, real human. Super scalded, scalded in the first 20 minutes and then like everybody walking out, tears streaming down their, their, their Boston College sweatshirts. <laughs> Just like really feeling, really feeling like they don't want to go to the, to the sex on the beach party after. Yeah. Crew practice is going to be really hard tomorrow morning, bro. Yeah. Because this movie is, this movie is extraordinary. Yeah. And there are elements of it that clearly are Oliver Stone. Yeah. You see them throughout where you're like, oh, Oliver Stone is here now and he's playing his liar. But when I saw that this movie was critically panned in its time, or at least not celebrated, it it shocked me. Yeah, I don't know if I'd ever heard of this movie. No, hadn't heard of it. If it had been marketed as a follow-up to Platoon, I, I think I would have been curious, Platoon curious at least. <laughs> John Roderick's uh, singles profile, <laughs> shaved, 420 friendly, Platoon curious. <laughs> But that's a joke. He's definitely not shaved. <laughs> shaved from the nipples down. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's the reverse, right? I want to yeah. wear open collared shirts, and sure. I want there to be a nice a nice hairy bush there in the middle. But. <laughs> you shave it into a V. But, but then everything everything below, I want it to be slick. You know, yeah, yeah. you're like a dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there is an incredible audience for this movie. You know. Cinema was was trying a lot of hard things in yeah. '93, and this movie uh, would have, I think, been been well regarded by a, a more sophisticated audience than just your your average sort of war movie crowd. I wonder to what degree JFK kind of poisoned the Oliver Stone well, because I watched the director commentary of this film. And he mentioned that the reaction to JFK was so overwhelming and negative that he felt compelled to just get the hell out of the country and go make another Vietnam film. He went back into the left. 
Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I wonder if you're a... Listen to him. He's so proud of himself. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember a feeling about Oliver Stone in the early 90s that may have, I mean, that that could confirm that suspicion that I have? Absolutely. I mean, I, and it, it was true for me. When JFK came out, it, it, was, um, it was so overwhelming in the popular culture and such a kooky, conspiracy-addled, movie full of weird like breaking the fourth wall and talking to directly to the audience about chemtrails and and uh you know the three hobos and whatnot and it <laughs> and it did uh yeah woody harrelson's dad it did and what i guess ted cruz's dad was one of those two guys mm-hmm. too it caused you to because because oliver stone had come onto the scene with such a bang in the eighties and was so celebrated. And then he made this sprawling crazy town epic and it diminished him. I think as somebody that we needed to pay close attention to what he was saying, which I think was the feeling going into JFK, that this was a guy that had a, that had an incredible take. JFK was just too crazy, but then he makes this movie heaven and earth, which is an incredible take. And in, in, in 1993, we had only just normalized our relationship with Vietnam or, or were in the process of normalizing. These were really, really current topics and really still there was a lot of emotion around them. So this movie was should have been on the cover of Time magazine. I wonder how differently it would have been received if JFK came out after this, for example. Yeah, I, I, I think you're on to you're on to something really true there. Yeah. It's also remarkable in that it's like, I think, I mean, especially in this era of his career, the only film I can think of that has a female lead. That That's one of the, uh, I think one of the things that hit me most about this movie, even now, there aren't movies with this kind of female lead. Right. And, and like the exploration on a, in a really deep and three-dimensional way of like what war means to women yeah. who experience it is like it is such an unexplored area. We don't use the word harrowing very often, and I hesitate to use it here. Because I pronounce it heroing. Heroing. Yeah. But I was gripping the arms of my chair throughout the first hour and a half of this two and a half hour long movie just grip just dreading what was going to happen next knowing something awful was about to happen and in, and not in a not in like a horror film way where we i mean from the opening scene when she enters the screen and you're just like oh no oh no this movie is like this woman is going to go through hell and and i'm and i have to go with her and i spilled my popcorn my pork chop got cold <laughs> yeah, you set the fork down and pushed the pork chop away from you on the on the TV dinner tray. Yeah, it turned to ash. But I, but I but I do feel if this movie came out today, it would be a respected movie. And not only yeah. that, if it were to come out today, Heptule would be lauded as one of the great new actors of her time. The actress who plays Laylee Hayslip in this film is a not professional actor. Yeah. She was a casting call person who just came with a friend and auditioned and it ended up working out for her pretty extraordinary yeah i mean her performance is also not necessarily one that received a ton of praise in the you know in 
when this movie came out, I think Ebert like thought the movie was great and thought she was great. And then there's like totally mixed reaction on the part of the rest of the hmm. movie commentariat, as far as I could tell. When I saw that, because I, I went immediately after the movie to go see how many Oscars it had been nominated for. Right. And when I, I, when it just I, seems like such an Oscar bait film. It's like, oh man, this just like probably tagged like five categories at the Oscars that yeah, year. Yeah, right. Cause it's how a, did we all forget that it existed when it won, you know, a bunch of Oscars? It's a beautiful movie, too. I mean, so many beautiful, beautiful shots. Uh, Can you believe this is the same Robert Richardson that did like all the Tarantino films, for example? Like Robert Richardson on camera here makes great and beautiful compositions. So beautiful that they're reused several times in this film. That's true. That's true. (laughs) But like there are some painterly moments for sure in the the camera. Uh, And then I saw, as you're saying, Ben, all this, this like two and a half stars. Just like shitty, shitty reviews. You know what I will say about the performance is that she is a better actor than she is a voiceover actor. And I could have done without the voiceover bookends, I think. There was a lot of voiceover in this film. And and it does a couple of times feel a bit like a crutch. And, and, you know, it's like... um, It felt a little Goodfellas in that way, right? Or like Idiocracy, where I'm like, Mm. I kind of just want to see the movie without it. And I feel like I would maybe even get more out of it. How did you feel... One of the things that sh- that kind of surprised and uh, surprised me and confused me was that he is making a film with Vietnamese actors who are speaking to one another in Vietnam and they're speaking in English, right? But with thick Vietnamese accents, and also like occasionally saying something in Vietnamese and then restating it in English. Yeah. And, and it seemed like he was so close to just making a movie where if they had just been speaking in Vietnamese and he'd had subtitles. Yeah. Um, I don't think there would have been any, I think it would have been a better experience because we're watching, you know, you're having that problem of the ESL problem where two characters, a father and daughter are standing together in their own village and they're saying, I, I go to big city now and you don't, you know, you don't get a sense of their intelligence or their right their unity with their culture and place and time because they're not speaking yeah. Vietnamese to each other as a second language it was a weird choice considering how much of this movie he really tried to make true to the experience of this woman in Vietnam true to the experience you know he didn't shy away from their closeness to the Viet Cong at first you know, he was really unapologetic. Why he wouldn't have just put it in Vietnamese, the first half of the movie. And then it would have been a shocker when the second right. half of the movie is in English and when we hear her speaking this kind of, uh, you know, a, a learned language. Well, it's kind of the letters from Iwo Jima problem, right? Damned if you do, damned if you don't with the American box office. I don't think that it's easy to get a big a big, uh, you know, opening weekend with a movie that's in a different language for most of it. Unless it's an Aramaic and it's about Jesus. Right. <laughs> I wonder if, he, if looking back, he wishes that he had just put that in Vietnamese. If he was going to lose all that money anyway. Right, right. Yeah, it feels like a very 1993 
you know, splitting the baby kind of decision. Yeah, it's a compromise. He did express some regret about not going farther in a couple of areas and, and being as restrained as an Oliver Stone can be in some of these creative decisions. He does talk a lot about um, how specifically he cast for well English-speaking Vietnamese or Asian actors to, to play these roles. Like, that was very specifically a goal of his. And I might disagree with you guys on how that dialogue is received. Like, I don't think we get the Julia Nixon and Rambo 2 problem in this film. It didn't clang for me in the way that it sounds like it did for you guys. I mean, it's certainly not that bad. Um, it's not, it doesn't feel fake. Yeah. Um, because she was like a Chinese actor that grew up in Oakland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a totally different issue. I think the issue is that it, like, when you have two guys with English accents dressed as Nazis talking to each other with their English accents, you don't imagine that the Nazis had unsophisticated patterns of speech. But because this is, like, ESL English that they're speaking to each other, it indicates something different, you know? It indicates, like, a lack of sophistication, which is not... Like yeah. you can't, you can tell that that's not textually what they're, what's intended, but it kind of it comes across that way, like on an emotional level or something. Mm. Right. And they're not, it has to inhibit them as actors because they're not able to communicate all the, the nuance of their circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Right. But what they are able to express is the emotional truth of their circumstances. And I thought in that way, their performances were great across the board agreed agreed i i loved the performances you know um the the actor who played her father he was also not a professional actor he became famous in that in the movie the killing fields which we still haven't seen but he actually is a survivor of the cambodian genocide uh and the whole first half of the movie i was like i am watching a really amazing film um how have I never seen this? How have I never heard of this? It's one of the few movies we've seen that really made war feel like this kind of emergent force that is impossible to control or tame. All of our characters are just kind of being blown around on the winds of these like geopolitical things that are happening. The French, the Japanese, now the Americans, all of us. It's an unusual perspective to watch a war unfold from the static position of a village. Yeah. We're always with the travelers, right? In a war movie, we're always with the soldiers. And to be in a bucolic village and then see the first incursion of the, you know, the rebels first come and they try to explain their position and everybody in the village is like, yeah, you know, you're right. We should resist the imperialist. And then that first time when the, South Vietnamese army shows up and they just seem so coarse and other, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're fellow countrymen, but they just seem like completely, uh, like an invading army. And they have those strange American advisors who are kind of standing around with sunglasses on that helicopter that comes down almost on top of her is like yeah. such a powerful moment. Just how much it stands out from the super traditional and, rustic environment this like it's like a spaceship you know yeah yeah the noise and wind 
countered against the peace and the quiet of the rice paddies. Yeah, I mean, like a little bit implausible that she didn't notice it coming up on her. Like it's it's like it's like fifteen feet over her head when she's like, "Wait, what's going on?" <laughs> the technology of a helicopter is just is just amazing. It's not necessarily a war making device. It's this crazy flying machine, and yet it arrives in her village, and all that technology, all that noise, all that strum and drong, and it brings nothing. Right, it's not there for any good reason. It's not. It, it's not even that it arrived to blow everything up. It just came to deliver a couple of guys in sunglasses, and then they take off and go somewhere else. And from from the perspective of someone who had been living in a world where, it, where none of that existed, to watch something like that come into your life and bring nothing and do nothing, right. Well, this is like the we're going to go win their hearts and minds moment, right? right, It's like, oh, yeah, that wouldn't work. (laughs) Right. And from from our perspective, watching Vietnam from from America and thinking about it as much as we've done, it's just never it's never as clear as it is in this movie how ludicrous the entire proposition was to to roll into these villages in a half track sit them all down and say, now remember, communism's bad. Here's a Hershey bar. Uh, we're out of here now. Hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang. Yeah, right. That we would leave any impression other than... I'm sorry, that's cheeseburger, cheeseburger, bang, bang. Cheeseburger, I don't know. cheeseburger, bang, bang. It's been a long time since we've recorded an episode of this show, and I'm really, I'm, I'm out of practice. Yeah, where are, your, where are all your catchphrases, Ben? That's your catchphrase. Littlest midshipman. I know, but I mean, if you're going to throw a catchphrase back at a guy. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm, I'm a guy. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's all right. Anyway, I, I, that was some of the most powerful stuff at the start of the movie was, uh, and I think what w- would have read as pretty radical in 93, yeah. the stuff that put us in the shoes of villagers in Vietnam who had no politics prior to the you know the beginnings of this conflict and no exposure to technology and no sort of sense of global picture they were just still living a a traditional lifestyle right a lifestyle that probably people 500 and a thousand years ago in that same place were living and how how there was no upside to americans americans brought nothing but cigarettes booze candy bars and then eventually you know death destruction rape violence disease there's a lot of torture and rape in this movie and that's something that oliver stone has not shied away from depicting i think that this being the like this all befalling our our main character means something different than just kind of some anonymous women in a village and platoon, for example. Yes. yes. Like the amount of indignity that is visited on her in like really in like the first 30 minutes of the film is pretty astonishing. It's astonishing that she has the strength of character to like bounce back from it honestly i think we haven't mentioned up until now that like the story depicted here is a true story based on a book that was written 
by this character. Yeah, who appears in the film. The the lady that wrote the two books that yeah. the script is adapted from is the uh, is the lady working in the um, in the pawn shop where she tries to sell her jewelry. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my sense was the first two acts of the film were pretty much taken directly from her book, and then the third act kind of conflated a couple of different marriages. Yeah, because the Steve Butler character was a composite. In watching the film, my takeaway was that every single person in Vietnam survived some variation of that amount of violence, brutality, exploitation, death. Like, there's no one in that country that escaped. Because how could they? It's a tiny yeah. country. How? I mean, Vietnam is, it, you could, you, at its narrowest, is, a, is a, like an incredibly small n- number of miles. There's a strange compounding shame, too, to what you described, in that even if you were fortunate enough to survive or escape and then return... You were made to feel ashamed of that. Yeah, right. I mean, she, she her mom spent her dowry to get her out of prison, but she was immediately branded a traitor right? because nobody could believe. And Oh, and, and that, that great moment where the Viet Cong are saying, you know, what did you tell them that they released you? And she said, oh, my mom spent all of our money. And they were like, oh, rich girl. Yeah. There was no answer that would have satisfied at that point. Yeah. And it's like, rich girl? Yeah. There's no rich girls. <laughs> and they've all gone Viet- too far. <laughs> They're gonna get tortured anyway. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. She couldn't win, right? Even in the end, when she came back rich with three healthy sons to visit the village. Her brother said, you know, all you've done is make us look. All, all that's going to happen from this is that we're going to get rejected by the rest of the village after you leave. How safe did you feel? I know, I know we're jumping to the end by talking about that scene, but I felt like we were, the film was gathering itself into a conclusion and that 
emotionally I was safe because I felt like we were five minutes away from the credits. And then that brother delivered that monologue and I was shattered all over again. That was an amazing moment of unexpected drama. Yeah. Adam, you watched this movie twice because we were supposed to record this a while ago and uh, missed our window. I, <laughs> that was like the first thing I thought of when I finished watching the movie is I cannot imagine watching this movie twice in rapid succession. Did, uh, did anything emerge for you on the second watch through that? The second watch through was with Oliver Stone in the form oh, of his commentary. And so I was able to, to glean some interesting stuff from that. One of the, I would recommend if you love this film, I would recommend that you do listen to the commentary version. I think there's some interesting kernels, especially in the first half hour. But then there's about an hour in the middle third of the commentary where Oliver Stone just talks to you about his worldview <laughs> and not about the movie at all. It almost felt like it was lifted from an interview. And then toward the end, we're back talking about the film again. Huh. Uh, but he had some interesting things to say about uh, his casting process, for example, and about working with Robert Richardson specifically. And uh, his deep sadness that not as many people as he hoped had watched a thing that he felt really strongly about. Yeah, he said in interviews that this is his favorite of his films. Yeah. This was early days of the Clinton administration. Clinton had been accused of being a draft dodger and a Vietnam War shirker by his opponents. Boy, what a presidential scandal. I know. Can you imagine? Holy shit. That a president <laughs> would have smoked marijuana and avoided Vietnam? Wow. Whew. How did he ever get elected? Fucking liberal media. But those first couple of years of his presidency, he was trying to normalize relations with Vietnam. And there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of suspicion that he was a liberal and a softy and Vietnam was still our enemy. This suspicion coming from the, you know, the predictable quarters, but the United States didn't actually normalize relations with Vietnam, political relations with Vietnam until 1995. We did not lose Vietnam. It was a tie. So this movie was actually, it actually came out in the midst of like really heavy geopolitical Movement, and we've talked about it before. A big contention in that normalization was the POW MIA issue. The Republicans were making a lot of hay about the fact that we couldn't normalize relations with them until they accounted for every last POW. And um, and so this was all like this was this was fraught topic. Yeah, and I th I, th I don't I don't I honestly don't think that that maybe we were ready for this film. Yeah. Because, yeah, this is definitely not throwing meat to the dopes like the, you know, POW MIA issue is not in this film even a little bit. No. There are almost no sympathetic American soldier characters in it. Or, sim or sympathetic soldiers at all. I mean, the only right. sympathetic soldier really is her younger brother who goes off to join the Viet Cong and we never see him again. The last... Yeah, like the last sympathetic soldier is looking over his shoulder ruefully as he walks yeah. away. <laughs> right, going like, well, I'm in it now. But yeah, nobody, there's no aspect. And I think that's what another thing I like about it is that it did not, I was very afraid when the Viet Cong first arrived in the film and gave that rousing speech where they said, you know, Vietnam has been oppressed by the Japanese, by the Chinese, by the French. 
and um yeah i was like signing up for i was like looking online to sign up to become a Viet Cong. In yeah that speech. well you know you're already a Viet Cong <laughs> honorary member just by <laughs> just by growing up in berkeley <laughs> they weren't allowed to shoot a lot of this in vietnam because the vietnamese government hated the script men are like dogs pissing on posts when she moves to saigon and begins her relationship with the with the rich catholic young prince and his westernized wife it turns into a second movie it's such a weird trick that this film plays on recalibrating a viewer's feelings about uh safety and kindness as soon as Lei Lee works at the mansion, like it's a fucked up relationship that he gets that she gets into with the master of the house. But like even that master slave kindness is better than the rape at the entrance of her grave. Right. Scene that we saw 10 minutes before, like like by virtue of its proximity in the film, it feels better for some reason, which is not Right. But she does that. She does an amazing amount of acting in that scene where where you see her fall in love with him. Yeah. And it's not just like now I feel safe, but she really she's just a young girl. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's falling in love under under duress, but but it does feel authentic and and tender tender. Yeah. Yeah. And then that all falls apart. Yeah. And then she's selling cigarettes on the street. I mean, the, the the hardest scene was the one where she's out selling cigarettes. She's got a little kid. She's got a three-year-old or whatever at this point. And that big American MP comes up and says, and greets her familiarly, familiar, familiarly, familiarly? Interrogate. How, one of those will work. Familiarly. And she's like, oh, hey, Big Mike, what's up? And he says, hey, I'll give you, uh, you know, they're, these two guys are short timers and they want to have sex with you. I told them that you were clean and here's 50 bucks. And she was like, no way. And you just feel such a betrayal. Like she knows this guy. It's big Mike. Yeah. He's an yeah. MP. Yeah. They have, she's they living- have a personal relationship, but also she's like, like the commodity for sale is her body. And he is and like he totally... pitches it to her as a thing that could change her life yeah, hey, for the better. Is... Like 400 bucks, well, come on. But what's crazy is he's like 50 bucks yeah. and she says no. And he's like, okay, 100 bucks. And she's like, no. And he says, you're driving a hard bargain. All right. Too. Yeah. And what you realize is he charged those guys 500 bucks. Yeah. This is yeah. like when I uh, when I went to the car dealership. I wound up walking out of there with the car paying $10,000 more than sticker. Yeah. Did you get the <laughs> undercoating? It comes from straight from the factory. You know, car yeah. was clean though, Ben. It yeah. was a clean car. But that but that feeling like there that she just had no now she was what she she was a place that we think of as safe, right? On base. Yeah. You're safe from violence here, you're safe from hunger. You're on base. But she was But she knows better, right? She's she found the better. she's found the bodies in the in the garbage heap. Right. Ugh. She makes it all the way to the scene where we're introduced to um, Tommy Lee Jones. There's like the perfect halfway moment in the movie. And Tommy Lee Jones, um, I don't know about you guys, but I did not like him (laughs) when he showed up. I did not like his vibe. I was so 
perplexed by him because I couldn't tell if the movie thought he was supposed to be likable or not for a long time. Right. He's he's such a layered character because it does seem like he kind of fetishizes her, but he also seems to love her. Like you understand why she can fall in love with him when he almost stabbed her with a knife because of what she's been through. Uh, like he says like racist things right to her face, but also like makes arrangements for her to be rescued by a helicopter. Like, like that second helicopter coming in, it represents a totally different thing. It was such a, uh, an interesting contrast to the first helicopter in the movie. Like suddenly the helicopter represents salvation and not the destruction of everything, you know, nice film studies thesis. Hello. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. That's also the scene where I noticed that Tommy Lee Jones is uh, weapon had a muzzle suppressor on it. Which to me indicated his special forces relationship. Did that did that trigger that thought for you also? And that maybe there was maybe something deeper to his soldier character that we weren't meant to know at that point? From the moment he arrives, you know, his rank and insignia and the way he kind of carries himself, he's not just a Marine who's yeah. who's doing base duty. Um, but that scene where she's taking off in the helicopter and he runs in his tiger stripe camos that's really the only scene in the movie that is like a war movie. Yeah. Combat-y. And, and consider how that shot is framed. It's all a point of view from Lele, and it's not territorial. You're not seeing the war action coming towards the viewer. You're just aimed down. Yeah. All yeah. you see is him and, and, his, uh, and his fellow soldiers. He's in a commanding posture, and he's and you can see like he's going into the bush at this point. He's looking to take the fight to... Yeah, he's looking yeah. for a route into into the fight. The goof section on IMDb usually has lots and lots of goofs. This time it only had one about this film. Oh. And uh, that's, that usually is not great for this segment. And I, have, I usually have to go look elsewhere for things that are wrong with the movie. But I actually kind of liked this one. Uh, when Steve picks up... Lele and her kids, when the South is being overrun, he flies in on an army helicopter, despite the fact that he and his friends are all in the Marines. Seems like a thing where maybe you would have just jumped on any old helicopter that was around that you could right. have gotten on. Maybe? And also, if he's like if he's like doing black ops shit, maybe the equipment available to you is slightly different than right. I don't know. But but Ben, I think you're I think you're very observant when you say that the film doesn't make it clear whether we're supposed to like Tommy Lee Jones or not. At this point in the movie, if you introduced a white soldier who was kind, I would accept it because I'm desperate for it. Everyone is so bad. It's so unusual to like meet a character in a movie in any context where the movie doesn't tell you whether it's a good character or not immediately. But kind of just like she does, we cling to him because he's the only uh, he's the only route she and we have out of Vietnam. And right. when he comes and saves her at the embassy, when she's standing there at the embassy and they're just like, no, he's missing in action. We got nothing for you. And he comes across the street. It really is like, 
you feel like, oh, he's the hero. He does save us here. Yeah. Right. And he does. He gets us out of Vietnam. And he seems like a, such a stud in Vietnam. And then when you get stateside and see him in that context, he's like, oh, he's like kind of a loser. Yeah. Every scene where the two of them were in together, just the difference in their size and watching her toughness come into action in America and, and then, I mean, how she, how, how she had to project size. She does that with her hair. <laughs> That's for sure. As soon as she gets to America. You know, that's a great observation, John, and I think they block the two actors very specifically for that reason. In their courtship, uh, I noticed that there was rarely, if ever, a moment where Tommy Lee Jones' character was on top of hers, for example. Mm -hmm. But when they start to fight in America, their size disparity is made clear in a couple of scenes, one of which is where he stands next to her and then screams at the top of her head. Yeah, down on her. Down, like almost totally angled down on her. And that is something that I don't feel like I see very often ever in a movie or in life. That angle that those two took at each other during that argument. He's like screwing her into the ground with his screaming at her. So at this point in the movie, I was thinking, you know, our our regular segment uh, came to mind where I was like, is this a war movie? Like we're in a domestic drama now. Yeah. We're, we're not in Vietnam anymore. We're in Southern California and we're in a broken marriage. And the marriage is broken for a lot of different reasons, but they were both, they were both traumatized by the war. It's tearing him to pieces and somehow it's gluing her together. But the war is the war is a distant memory now, and this is fully half of the movie. I, th I don't think there's any question whether or not this is a war movie, but it's not only a war movie. Yeah. Steve Butler's self-destruction in many other depictions of the soldier returning home, we get the the war having caused that self-destruction in the returning soldier. And I feel like this movie takes such a different path to that in that it is Lee Lay's forgiveness that triggers the point of no return for him. Like her constant willingness to put him back together and forgive him over the long haul. This is something that he can't accept. And I think that's the reason that he kills himself in a strange way. It's not that he can't get the war out of his system. I think he sees a person who was able to survive and thrive after the war in a way that he just can't. And I think that comparison is totally destructive to him. Because he was a loser going into the war. Yeah. He found a place in the world where he had a set of skills that were valuable, mm -hmm. it, which is that he could kill people. And now after the war, he's back, he's back to being a loser. Yeah. And she's willing to compromise so much of what she is in order to make it work with him. I mean, I feel like the moment, the, the last moment we see him before we find out he's taken his own life is her on the phone with him saying like, I'll start going to church with you. I'll take down my Buddhist shrine. Uh, like everything I hold dear that, makes our relationship a problem I'll get rid of yeah 
in service of getting right with you. And his performance in that in that scene is amazing. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's so interesting that it's over the phone, you know, like he he's not playing yeah. off of anybody, but you see him overwhelmed by the generosity she's showing him, the emotional generosity that she's showing him. And you see that he is not equal to that generosity. Although even then, whether he was breaking down and was going to be a better man, uh, you know, his suicide took me by surprise, not completely by surprise, but but you know the film did a good job of yeah of, i think in retrospect it play, it's it's yeah. that but yeah I, I agree that it seems like at any moment he could start to be more emotionally vulnerable with her and start to you know reassess like who he is and what he can be in the world yeah this movie is very um hard on christianity there's no instance where Christianity is um, mentioned or portrayed where it isn't seen as uh, like a, an instrument of the oppressor. Yeah. And she, she maintains, I mean, there's a, there's a very strong Buddhist thread running throughout the film. She, she is restored by Buddhism multiple times. We see that Buddha statue in her village multiple times in flashback and in, in, uh, it's a, it's a motif, a light motif. Yeah. And, and like maybe the second most powerful monologue in the film is the, is the Buddhist master that comes over to her house and counsels her on what to do about her marriage. So that, that, that contrast between Christianity and Buddhism, I, I, I wondered whether that was Oliver Stone's worldview that he was sort of um, that, that he found a way to express or whether that was really in her book and her experience of coming to America and feeling like her, her Buddhism, that Buddhism is strong enough that it can translate even into the shopping malls of Southern California. I can tell you that it's both. And Oliver Stone actually wanted to more, diametrically opposed the two religions in this film there were pages and pages that that made it a buddhism versus christianity conflict uh underpinning many of the interpersonal conflicts that husband and wife have here uh but oliver stone was reluctant to go there because he felt like he had a lot to lose as a filmmaker against an american audience who had al already grown hostile to his storytelling methods like he was like this may be too far for me to go i really want a lot of people to see heaven and earth maybe i'll just leave that out of the story and he that's one of the things he regrets is like had i known that unfortunately so few people saw this film i would have gone deeper into those elements that i wanted to and i i just felt i felt like i wanted to be a little safer in that way interesting casting jeffrey jones as the minister was pretty prescient in that way <laughs> Yeah, right. a more powerful conflict Oof. over time. <laughs> Pretty crazy. <laughs> Pretty crazy. His little cameo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's how they do it in their family. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when the South Vietnamese army arrives in her village at the very beginning, the 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 way she described them is, well, they are Vietnamese, but they're Catholics. 
and then her relationship with the with the her master in Saigon, the mistress catches her praying to her husband's ancestors, and it's an open sort of conflict where she's like, "Why are you praying to his ancestors?" Like, like she knows what it means, but she's Catholic, and and um, and they are Catholic, and then she moves to Southern California. And they are, they're, what are they, non-denominationally California Christianity? I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game is mine. I don't really know my, my Christian sects, sects the way I should. Well, as a member, of, uh, honorary member of the Viet Cong, <laughs> you wouldn't have been taught that stuff in your... Yeah, in your, they all your, look the same to me. Your Oakland <laughs> madrasa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my third eye was open at a very young age, John. I know. I know. I know. I wish I could close it. L.A. jeans, but in Oakland, Madrasa. <laughs> so were there any clunkers in this movie for you? It was a hard movie for me to watch. I, I couldn't I couldn't watch it in in one go. You know, like there there is some redemption in the film. She gets some redemption from her mom in the end. She gets some redemption from herself. I think maybe she mostly gets redemption from herself, but it's it's really hard to watch. I I I wish more people had seen it too. I think that it made me think about and understand Vietnam in a different way, and and I'm really impressed by how human the Li Lei character is and how sensitively portrayed she is. I wouldn't have guessed that you know go like look at yeah going in looking at oliver stone being the director i couldn't have imagined that it would be the film that it was but it's uh i I think there are some parts that that don't necessarily work but it's uh it's really worth watching when i see a movie like this that is that's really trying to be true to the time and place but it's scored with a big treacly sound stagey orchestral score at least in this instance it located this film to me in the 90s rather than in its own period and i was grateful grateful that we didn't get a soundtrack of the doors and credence clearwater revival yeah if you you bet no ccr in a vietnam war film i mean that was a plus four hundred underdog. Exactly. Go ahead and, and go ahead and cash your ticket. And we got a lot. We got we got some sixties music coming from transistor radios in the streets, but the the movie never did never cut to slow motion helicopters with this is the end playing, and that was great. But it was, but there was some heart stringy strings in the in the first half and toward the end that I felt like were manipulative. Now, maybe that's a thing that I shouldn't notice. Maybe that's just how films are made. Um, And maybe it needed it because to not have it would have negatively impacted it. I kind of don't know enough about the language to know what, what role he expected those strings to play. Do you guys have any thoughts? (laughs) No, I I agree with you. I mean, I think that, like one of the big knocks against Spielberg is that the music is always kind of telling you how to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think like one of the strengths of this movie is that it, it makes some choices not to tell you how to feel in certain parts. And I felt that that uneasiness was a really interesting thing to experience while watching it uh, of, I, I am really being asked to form my own conclusions here. Like when Tommy Lee Jones says, I need a good oriental woman and that is being played for finally she's found true love. But like, I'm going like, Oh my God, that's so fucked up. The Like just the like premise of that statement is so fucked up. And the tension between those things, like the, the, the movie does nothing to break that tension. It lets, it lets you sit with it until he resolves into being a total head case. He's so complex, Ben. Like, on the one hand, you get something like that, but then you get him defending Lele at the Thanksgiving table in front of everyone. Yeah. Right. Like, But also, like, just on the heels of, like, kind of talking shit about her with Dale Dye, like, yeah. at the same table. Yeah. Yeah. Although he's not, he's not into Dale Die. I mean, he's pissed off. Yeah. I think that's part of part of what ramps him up to his. I think he like he takes a turn in that scene. Like I think that initially he's kind of they're kind of like yucking it up and you know knocking back shots and then and then when he kind of realizes that everybody at the table is is othering her, he really does defend her. Yeah. Don't you give her a break, Bernie. She can't eat for her whole damn country. And like musically there are moments that it does it tells you what to feel and it is treacly like the composer is like a new age artist kitaro i think uh-huh japanese composer um and and there are some heavy-handed moments but i think like the, mo- the heavy-handed music in movies seems to me like the the rule not the exception and and the moments that were the exception were the were the real standouts in this film for me. It's a little bit of its time in that way too. I think the early '90s do not reflect well on movie scoring in that way. Yeah, one early '90s choice I wanted to talk about was the like ultra wide angle anamorphic lenses that they use when she gets to America and starts seeing like double wide refrigerators and supermarkets yeah. and stuff. The, the scenes where she's walking down the aisle of the supermarket and, the, and it's just taking in the, the orgy of canned food felt a, like the one cartoony moment in the whole film. Yeah. And, and he's trying to communicate a real thing that happened. That, that scene where they're just throwing giant scraps of meat and vegetables down the, the garbage disposal. <laughs> uh, just like, oh, you know, scraping plates into the sink and she's looking at it like, that felt so good, fellas, to me. Like when Lorraine Bracco marries Ray Liotta, and like she starts doing the voiceover about what it's like to be a mafia doll, a mafia wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Good. Even comparison. down to like the hair and makeup, that transition. Quick, you have to cover that cross. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times in the film. How you you're made to feel safe very briefly before that illusion is spoiled and this is one of those scenes too it, there's some levity to this her walking down the aisle and wanting to fill up her cart with all the bags of rice it can carry but as soon as they get to the checkout lane the magic is gone when she's mean mugged by the checkout lady although you feel as she starts to become more resourceful within the vietnamese uh, expatriate community in southern california and she realizes oh, I can get money to start a business because we have a separate idea about 
how loans work. We loan money to each other. And she starts to she starts to have a separate community. You do get that feeling like she's going to be okay. There's never a safe space. Right before Tommy Lee Jones kills himself, you think, oh, he's going to kill her now. Although she's voiceovering this movie, so she can't die. There's no last tragedy waiting in the wings for her. Right. I was not expecting, after having seen all of these moments of brutality, to feel the kind of serenity and acceptance that Li Lei felt. But I did. I thought the ending to this film was fairly magical in its ability to pull that off. It really makes a great case for Buddhism, I think. And I'm not saying that to be flip. Like, wow, she has gone through so much and has come away on the other side pretty okay. It does, but it also, I think, makes the case that she is has a remarkable inner strength but it doesn't shame anybody that didn't have that, you know, the way that Tommy Lee Jones is broken, you know, you, you come to understand how much he's been victimized by circumstance and he makes bad choices and, um, does bad things, but you can see like how human those follies are, you know, I'm still willing to blame his character for being a bad person, though. I mean, is that the wrong way to <laughs> to look at him? He did bad things. He was a victim of his circumstances, but he didn't try to change at all. He leaned into his deficiencies, if anything. Yeah, I think that uh, I kept thinking about that Upton Sinclair quote. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Like all of the opportunity that he has presented in life is couched in war and the furthering of it for profit, you know? Yeah. And he is good at that. And <laughs> that's that's a non-starter for her. I just think you've achieved a serenity that I can't, Ben, because I can't forgive <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones' character. I think he was a piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, I I agree that he's a piece of shit, and I I wish he had the like inner strength that she did, and could accept the idea of like abandoning that aspiration for himself. But I can understand why somebody wouldn't when there's sixty five thousand dollar a year job being dangled in front of them. I mean, on a macro scale, we watch a movie like this, we see her hero journey. And it's tempting to say, like, she is an exceptional, one-of-a-kind survivor. But I think this experience that she had was shared by millions of people in Vietnam. And a lot of them survived. Survived worse, even, than she did. So although, although we want to look at her and say that she is extraordinary, and I think she is, it's also a movie about how you can survive, how it's in us all in a way to survive. Um, we think of, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about minor brutalities, microaggressions, but you can suffer through some awful, awful things in life and come out the other side, still mostly whole, but not everyone can. Yeah. 
And it's unpredictable right? who can and can't. And people that seem the strongest maybe can't. And people that you would look at and say, this person is, has no, I mean, she had no education, no money, no power of any kind. And yet, and yet found a path. But at the end, when she comes back to Vietnam, she's an American and her children are Americans and she's proud of it. And they're proud of her. And now we're forced to contend with the fact that all the things that are terrible about America, all the 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 pain and destruction that America brought to the world, brings to the world, brought to her world, it's only in America that she could have found that whole other life. America's not incidental to that. Someone who had been on her journey could land and be free of that shit from her village where people are shaming her for her past and make a new life, admittedly, you know, under a halo of hairspray and Southern California kind of uh, bangles. <laughs> so we're not really let off easy there either. You can go through this entire movie hating the United States and everything it rep- represents, but at the end you you can't, you you would have to turn a blind eye to the conclusion of the film, which is like, yeah, and the United States is still the place in the world where everyone is afforded a, an opportunity and where she could, she was able to convert to and not convert to religion. But I mean, she converted to a first down like, ugh, I really, I really got to the end of the movie and felt almost obligated to watch it again, but I didn't have, I didn't have the strength. I also didn't, it was four o'clock in the morning. I didn't have the time. <laughs> the more I kill, the more they gave me to kill. It's the most important part of the show, I think. Mm-hmm. I bet you. I bet you think that. It's the part where we review the war film we've just discussed, and we review every war film using a film's own rating system. This is crucial. It's so we don't compare war film to war film, and maybe most crucially in this instance, we don't compare Oliver Stone war film to Oliver Stone war film. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the rating system was for Platoon, but you can't use that rating system for this. No, it wouldn't apply at all. It'd be impossible. Uh, there is an object in the film that I thought best represented a rating system for Heaven and Earth. There's the moment during the courtship between Steve Butler and Lei where it's not the first date. There's a, it's maybe not the second or third date, but they, they skip forward in time a little bit. And he's, he's brought her a box full of gifts and these gifts are for her son specifically. And inside the box is one of those piece of shit, wind up panda symbol playing like racket makers. And that is such a gift from someone to a recipient that they don't know very well, right? (laughs) <laughs> it's one of those things, it's an impulse buy that you see at the check stand. Like, I got this box of other shit. Like, maybe maybe the kid will like this thing. Everyone likes a, a wind-up racket maker. And it made me think about... All of your Christmases as a yeah, child? Yeah, <laughs> every Christmas I've ever had. But also, like, the mind of a filmmaker who's trying to give something to an audience. Like, Oliver Stone is trying to, like grab you by the back of the neck and show you what the Vietnam War did to people who worked in the rice paddies during the war. Like she's trying, he's trying to show this heroic story 
this transformation that this person makes and their ability to come out fine on the other side, this, this ability to recover. And I was so like, I was tormented while watching the film because I had this, this conflict in my mind, like if it's Oliver Stone, how sentimental can you possibly be? John, you talk all, all the time about sensing the hand of a filmmaker at work. And I came into this conversation expecting to excoriate this film based on my inability to believe Oliver Stone's sentimentality here. This is a guy who made Salvador, which was basically a thinly veiled sex tourism film. And what we see here is, I mean, a different kind of sex tourism happening and the relationships between that, that white people have with, with Vietnamese women is gross and awful. Like, I was so conflicted throughout, but I think the conversation that I've had with you guys has made me appreciate this film on so many other levels and has removed the hand of Oliver Stone and made me look at it on an individual level instead of as a part of a filmmaker's eve. <laughs> And I think that's crucial in enjoying a film like this. Not that enjoyment is really the feeling, but like appreciating a film's greatness in this way. And I thought this film was awesome. Before talking with you, I thought I would give this three symbol slapping panda toys. Uh, but this is four and a half panda symbol toys. I think this is one of those films that I'm really glad that I saw thanks to a project like this one. And I think and hope more people should see it. I, I do hope more people see it. I think, uh, you know, go in knowing that it is going to be a challenge. You know, this is not one of the those films that's fun to watch. And for long, long stretches, it's actively unpleasant. But I do feel like this is one of those cases where you know an artist is actually able to access some insight about the way the world works and yeah like i think that oliver stone you know i do, I do think he completes a trilogy about vietnam here this is the hard the highest degree of difficulty of the three films and i know that we haven't watched born on the fourth of july yet for this show but it really does put you in the shoes I mean, I guess I can't say it really does, but to me it feels like it really does put you in the shoes of a young woman in Vietnam and 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 what her experience is like. And like weirdly the other film that I felt like made me understand Vietnam from the Vietnamese perspective the most was Operation Dumbo Drop. I hope we'll watch some films from the Vietnamese cinema eventually that deal with this conflict but i thought i, I yeah I, i'll come in at a at, at four panda symbol uh rating for this film we've we've already mentioned it came after jfk but also right before natural born killers like oliver stone was not an unknown property and he wasn't just languishing in the the, the backlash of jfk like this was oliver stone's moment uh but both of those movies were big splashy attention-getting blockbusters. I don't know. I didn't have very high expectations. Uh, and it grabbed me from the very beginning, from the, from the first shot. 
of that valley. There were four or five things in the film that I, where I felt a little bit taken out of the movie and, and put into a film studies moment or two. But on the whole, I feel like this movie really succeeded. It's uncomfortable to watch, as you say, Ben, but it isn't a, it isn't a slog. It doesn't feel like this is a film that we all have to watch, even though it's not fun. But it's, a, for me, a great movie. I have no complaint with the acting. I have no complaint with the script. I can't find any of my normal complaints. I'm sure they're around here somewhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, Adam's Adam's here in my house. Takes, yeah, that's takes, not always great. Takes half a star off of anything. Yeah. But I can't find a way to ding this movie. Everything in the movie serves a purpose within the movie and the world beyond. I think Oliver Stone tried to do something here and he succeeded. And so I give it five stars. Wow. Or I'm sorry, five clanging, noise-making, I would have called it a monkey. You keep saying panda. It was a panda. Five clanging, cheapo, like street fair symbol pandas. Five of them. Big score. Who's your guy though, John? There's so many bad guys in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so many bad, bad. A lot of options for Ben, bad obviously. Yeah, but sure. for you and me, it's a more difficult challenge. Why, why don't we start with Ben? He has all of his his uh, his Viet Cong pals to pick from. <laughs> all of his classmates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my guy comes very early in the film. I think probably in the first dozen or so shots. It's just kind of establishing the gorgeous bucolic environment. Um, but, uh, pretty quickly it cuts to a crowd of dozens and dozens of ducks running down a path. Those ducks are my guy. The ducks are your guy. Yeah. I love those guys. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> Just a big old <laughs> crowd of ducks running toward the camera. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm going to pick a tank as my guy. <laughs> like, can we do this? The ducks. <laughs> All right. Adam, who's your guy? Uh, my guy is Mama. Mama goes through almost as much as Lele, and you could make the argument that she goes through maybe even more. More, yeah. Because she also lost children. Yeah. Um, she is so strong and so brave, and in the face of uh, awful loss, does not, like break break in a way that you would <laughs> break in a way that Tommy Lee Jones does you know and she sticks up for her daughter at every turn every fucking turn especially to that to the rich guy in the mansion like she is constantly on the bottom end of the power imbalance in any situation by virtue of her social standing or how she looks or that her family has either died or made mistakes that have reflected poorly on her and everyone else. And yet at the end, when Lee Lei returns with her family, like she is welcome. She's welcomed at the at the table. She wants to enjoy the Pharaoh Rocher candy. Like she's willing to achieve the same sort of feeling that her daughter does at the end. Like she's open to that. 
And I thought that was an amazing story for her as a character. So Mama's my guy. She's chewing uh, betel nuts through the entire movie. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, her teeth are red stained and we never, it's never referred to like it's no one ever. Yes. Mama's played by Joan Chen, who is a like legacy, great actress, beautiful and like is willing to go full monster in this film. Full betel nut. Yeah. Uh, local woman. Really, really great performance. Yeah. Well, this is somewhat uh, unprecedented, but I think my guy is Oliver Stone in this movie. Wow. You know, we've talked about his hero journey personally. Went to Yale, dropped out, went and taught English in Vietnam, joined the Merchant Marines. You know, young guy, young privileged guy trying to find himself in the world. Ended up signing up for Vietnam and requesting combat duty went and fought and really fought and then came back and took filmmaking classes with Martin Scorsese and started working in film. And he made platoon, which described his, you know, kind of fictionalized his personal experiences in Vietnam. He made born on 4th of July, which was working from Ron Kovic's autobiography But this movie, if you think about him in 1966 in Vietnam saying, one day I'm going to make a movie about this, and his experience of being there, kind of like we imagine that the, you know, I'm I'm sure that is how we would be there, thinking, you know, these are beautiful people, this is a beautiful country, we're ruining it, I want to make a movie about that, I want to communicate to the world what I saw but he actually did. There were thousands and thousands of soldiers in Vietnam that said, I'm going to go home and make a movie about this. He actually did. And he made, he's a veteran of this war and he made a movie that portrays the experience of the people of that country and did and succeeded. I think it's a triumph. And to the degree that I feel him in the movie, I don't feel his directorial hand as much as I, as I feel somebody trying to trying to make up for in some small way for what happened there by just telling the story. So I, there's no, there's no one in the film that I felt, Oh, there's my guy, right? Like that guy was funny. Yeah, <laughs> I did. It was that like, crowd of ducks. <laughs> the ducks are the only rickles in this film. Oh, huh? The ducks were the rickles. Yeah. I, I got to listen to the director's commentary. Me too. Yeah. What are we watching for the next film? Okay, I've got our uh, I've got our D one hundred die here. Is the D does the D in D one hundred stand for die? Is that is that a redundancy? So. Dice one hundred dice. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, here it is. And it lands on lucky number five. Uh, number five, we jump uh, forward in the future to the Second Iraq War. This is a 2010 film directed by Paul Greengrass. It's Green Zone, starring Matt Damon. Hmm. If your name is Greengrass and you direct a movie called Green Zone, shouldn't you have found a different title? <laughs> Why did he name a film after his dick? Yeah, right. Come on into the Green Zone. <laughs> Uh, I have not seen this movie. Have you guys? No. 
I have, but I don't really remember it. I mean, I remember it se seeming like it was kind of trying to make a serious movie that capitalized off of the Jason Bourne associations that Matt Damon has. Oh, is this a punch em up style war film? I think it's kind of, yeah, I think he's kind of like on foot in Baghdad, like hmm. running around. Green zoning it up? Green zoning it up, yeah. Well, it's been a while since we had a pork chop movie. Matt Damon brings some chop. Yeah. He's uh, like he's probably my number one pork chop actor. Let's find out if the green grass is greener on the other side. I'm looking at the bell, but you're not getting I think a you bell. undid a bell there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. We'll leave it with Robs, 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 Robs from here. So for John Roderick, Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison to the victor. Go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. And our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or just head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Make a donation and check the Friendly Firebox. We have a subreddit and a Facebook discussion group, but if you'd like to talk about the show on Twitter, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.